It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast, coming to you from the Guardian Edinburgh International Television Festival. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, all the gossip, all the intrigue from the biggest event in the British television calendar. From Armando Iannucci's barnstorming keynote to the many new commissions announced during the festival, plus the dozens of TV execs who take time out from the conference centre to scour the fringe for the next big comedy hit. We speak to BBC commissioning editor Ed Sleeman about what he's looking for. All of that coming up on this week's Media Podcast. Well, has it been a year already? We have descended upon Edinburgh once more uh, for what is essentially the TV industry's Glastonbury. Uh, Although you could argue that now the BBC sends so many staff to Glastonbury that Glastonbury is actually the TV industry's Glastonbury. Nonetheless, the TV festival is a big deal and joining me amongst the delegates as they thrust and shuffle their way from sessions to talks to parties are Boyd Hilton and Faraz Osman, two of our favourites. Uh, Boyd, you are Heat Magazine's TV editor. That is reason enough for you to get a free pass to anything. Correct. Uh, but you've been uh, chairing some sessions here at the I TV have, yeah. I, every year I, I come to this thing, um, I think this is my, I think it might be my 14th year, and um, I uh, do host a number of sessions. And this year I've hosted multi-channel this morning, which was with um, basically controls from MTV, Comedy Central, Nat Geo, and um, A&E Networks. Do they have something of an inferiority complex like they might um, have done in the past? They pretend they don't. Yeah. But um, actually, they don't, they don't think they do. I think they know their. They think they know what their jobs are really important. You know. I mean, like, funnily enough, there's something like Nat Geo, which I don't pay much attention to personally, but he's commissioning like things that cost billions of dollars with America and in, with like Ron Howard, and this, it's, it's that huge, big stuff actually. So. I learned a lot myself, so that was genuinely interesting. Um, and then I did a thing for the network, for the youth thing, um, with my friend Ben Winston, who's James Corden's producer of his chat show in America. That was really interesting. He talked us through his whole career, and uh, that was great. And then tomorrow I'm doing the head of Sky One, Adam McDonald, tomorrow morning, controller session. So, yeah. They make you work for they your... They make me work, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm exhausted. Yeah. I mean, okay. they make no bones about it. I'm, I'm exhausted. But it's fun as well. I, I genuinely like, like it. Yeah, I mean, we sort of covered this last year, but as yeah. much as anything, it's about the social... Uh, 
elements. Yeah, but even I'm a total geek. I love the sessions. You know, yeah. I love going from session to session. Well, not all of them, but the ones I pick out carefully. Um, but you know, I literally go through the program, pick out ones I want to go to that don't clash with mine. Maybe when you come for your 25th year, they'll take the Guardian away from the title and just make it the oh, Boyd Hilton oh, Festival. Yeah, amazing. That'd be it's good. It's only a matter it? of time. That's the future. <laughs> uh, and uh, talking of the future, Faraz Osman, uh, managing director of TV Indie Lemonade Money. Are you up for business or pleasure this year? I'm, I'm having a bit of a, a forced existential crisis, to be honest. Like, so we're, we're doing a lot of stuff with um, a lot of brand partners. Uh, we're working with Vivo, we're working with Nando's, we're working with the, just some stuff with uh, Virgin Media. But I guess for, for me, kind of coming here, there's always a bit of a question about, okay, what does this look like? Is, is this merging? Is it not merging? Are they getting further away? So, so it's always good to get here and, and figure out uh, exactly where the land lies with, with television and, and like, like Boyd I'm, I'm a massive telly geek and you know I think this industry is is fascinating uh, both politically and technically and editorially um, so you get to see all of that and it's a lot of fun and free and beer there, I don't drink so oh, actually yeah. I'm here I, there is a, like a whole level of experience I don't understand yeah. where people come up to me kind of going are you really drunk and I'm like no and they're like what are you doing here people keep saying to me what are you doing here and I'm like I'm, I'm at a TV festival. I'm not what, and then I kind of go, well, if I'm at a TV festival, I'm not watching TV because no one watches TV here. I've missed everything. I've missed a Bake Off. Like, I don't know yeah. what's going on there. Someone's probably dropped a pie. No idea what's happening there. <laughs> and I'm at a festival and I'm not drinking. So to actually, this is a bit of an issue for me. I don't I have no idea why I'm here. I probably should get the train yeah. back now. Oh God, that must be a very different experience. Yeah. Tending it and not drinking. I can't really compute that. I'm not but, sleeping yeah. as well. But I think that's. Oh, no, I haven't slept. I haven't, I mean, no I haven't slept, slept, but I have drank. Uh, okay, right, let's talk about uh, the biggest story at the festival. Uh, and that, of course, is Armando Iannucci uh, and his acclaimed McTaggart lecture. He got a standing ovation and everything. Uh, we at the Media Podcast had a front row seat, uh, although actually we did retreat backwards one row just so we didn't look like nerdy fanboys. Uh, here is a taster of what went down on Wednesday night. If public service broadcasting, one of the best things we've ever done creatively as a country... If it was a car industry, our ministers would be out championing it overseas, trying to win contracts, boasting of the British jobs that would bring. If the BBC were a weapons system, half the cabinet would be on a plane to Saudi Arabia to tell them how brilliant it was. And yet it's quite the reverse. They talk of cutting down to size, of reining in imperialist ambitions, of hiving off, of limiting the scope. And they do it with all the manic glee of a doctor ever so reasonably urging his patient to consider the benefits of assisted suicide. Unquestionably troop rallying stuff from Armando Iannucci. He obviously felt this needed to be said. Do you agree with him that it did need to be said, Boyd? I agreed with every single word of, of it. I read it first because the journalist gets sent it to read. So I read it first and I thought, there's one bit I, might, I can't disagree with, which is about um, the BBC Online. So, Because I, I think, you know, I've always thought the BBC's a website. Like, why are they doing a website? I remember even when they started, I'm that old, I can remember, why are they even on the world? You know, why do they need to do that? And they're not a publisher, they should be doing programmes, you know. But he even convinced me on that, because he pointed out that, you know, it's the 60th most uh, acclaimed website in the world, and, you know, it would be the weird. Only British one in the the only British one on the list. It would be weird for the rest of the world. And I, even that convinced me when he said it out loud. 
So I agree with everything you said. I think it was by far the best of attack I've ever seen. I've seen about 14 of them. Apparently Dennis Potter did one about 30 years ago. That was probably brilliant. Apart from that, there hasn't been one that came close to that one. I mean, last year's was so boring, I can't even remember what it was about. Yeah, a um, lot of listeners won't even remember who it was. No, recap, it was no, David Abrams, that's wasn't right. it, from Channel yeah, 4? Oh my God, it was diabolical. Yeah, it was, it was kind of <laughs> you remember how angry I was this <laughs> time last year? So this it was unremarkable, been, I think. It, was unri- it yeah. just shows you, if you get someone who, is, A, he loves TV, like we do, I think, he knows his stuff and he's funny. He can, he's a brilliant writer, so he's brilliantly structured, full of jokes, full of righteous indignation because he's right about the BBC. It was just fantastic. I couldn't be happier with it. And it was like, and it's completely set the tone for the whole festival because it means that everyone's got something really interesting and fun, fun and important to talk about and to react to rather than the utter tedium that it was last year. And most years, the Kosaka is boring. Let's face it, most years it's boring. When you get the lecture before yeah. they arrive, like, yeah. do you read it in his voice or like the voice of one of his characters? <laughs> I, I was reading it in his very, very, um, in his great Scottish brogue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could hear him saying it. But you know what? Funny, I was thinking, shall I bother going? Why are you like, you know, but then I wanted to see him deliver it because there was this great bit in the middle where he did this battle thing. Uh, you talk about that kind of did a symbolic battle for the BBC and that was so fun that I was really glad that I, I watched it as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think the, the big headline would be if it was rubbish. It's, you know, he's, a, he's a comedy writer, he's at a TV festival, he makes TV comedies. Um, he's probably, I would argue, one of our best writers we have in television right now. You, you know he's going to advocate this area. Everyone loves him. It was an amazing speech. It was by far my favourite that I've heard, certainly top to all the other ones that I've seen in the last um, few years. The only surprise would have been if it was terrible, which it certainly wasn't. It was going to be great, and it, it delivered on that. Okay, but let's, let's talk about some of the things that he said that I have qualms about, even if you're not going to express them. How about this? Yeah. He says the BBC should be trying to make as much money as possible yeah. uh, by selling its material yeah. abroad. Yeah. And in, in principle, I get that because it would raise the coffers and subsidise the licence fee. Isn't there a danger, Boyd, that by doing that, the focus of the commissioners would be on can we get an international audience for this? rather than are we serving the licence fee payers at home, which is ultimately what the BBC oh, is for? Um, no, I think, it, what, I think what he meant was, was that they're not, even, they're not milking what they currently produce, which happens to have a huge international appeal, to its fullest possible extent. So they've got these huge, big gems, you know, which do have an international appeal, and they're not actually get, earning as much money from them as they could, or they're not, you know, they're not, it's almost the system isn't allowing them to do it. So, I mean, he definitely wasn't saying, you know, they've got to look for international appeal, cause, and that would be, I no. think, I, I just don't think they would even begin to do that. But of course I he think, wasn't saying that, but it's no. cause and effect, isn't it? Like, if um, you end up with half of the BBC being funded by the sales of programmes that you make because they appeal to an international audience, you're going to stop making stuff perhaps that's so domestic. Oh yeah, but he wasn't saying that, he wasn't saying half, he wasn't saying, he was just saying they should be allowed and they should be better and they should proudly go forth and make sure they make money out of their international hits. It was like, it was more, you know, the end product of what they're producing should be milked for more money. And I agree with that. I mean, all right, you could at a stretch say the cause and effect might be, but I, I just don't believe that's true. And I think if they did start doing that, I mean, it's almost impossible today anyway. You can't, you know, you can come up with great formats and ideas. If they end up having a Chesterfield, brilliant. If they don't, then they don't. Okay, qualm number two for us. Politicians basically shouldn't interfere with the creative industries, and if they do, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but the, the implication was, if they do, they should always seek the consultation of creatives as well as executives. Fine, but actually, 
There's nothing wrong, is there, with politicians examining the BBC, which receives a big slice of public money? No, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and in fact, that's, that's what needs to be done, because it is public money. And I think that there's this ongoing debate, both in households when they pay the licence fee and, and when they see the content on their screens, and, and also when, it, when we're looking at government policy as well. I think, I think for me, the reason that we keep coming back to this and the reason that, that these, these sort of things are so fascinating is because television, like politics just isn't an exact science it's there's there's no right or wrong answer there's no sense of you know your, your question earlier about whether we should be making more money abroad i mean no i don't as a tv producer kind of go right i need to think of the, the idea that's going to spend the most amount of money like around the world you don't you don't do that you kind of go this is a good idea this may attract that commissioner i don't think commissioners look at ideas and go oh is this going to be a worldwide hit they go is this going to be a good idea for what i'm looking for right now that then generates a whole other market where they're like, well, does this work internationally? But there's no, I don't think there's one route where you're like, right, we need to figure this out or we need to figure that out. I think people just come up with ideas and people celebrate them. Some of them work, some of them don't, and, and that's great. And I think what the frustration is across the industry when it comes to politics is, is that they then try and focus group it and they try and have a discussion and a round table and come up with an answer about the value of the BBC or the value of public service broadcasting and they never really get to one. But for me, the, the key thing about this debate is I, th- I feel we need to start separating the, the licence fee debate with the BBC debate. They're, they're too intertwined at the moment. And uh, I think there's a, there's a genuine problem with how we collect the licence fee and, uh, and then how that gets distributed back again. And I think we need to start thinking about how, you know, is it having a licence fee, is that the best way of doing it? And then, and then forward from that, whether or not the content that the BBC is making is, is the right reflection for, for those licence fee payers. Having a debate is the right mm. thing to do, and that's but why we have charter renewal. Just to address the politicians looking into the BBC thing, he wasn't saying the politicians shouldn't be examining the BBC in any way they see fit. What he was saying was they're talking to the wrong people. He was saying if they talk to creative people who are actually making this stuff, they would get a very different set of answers, and that's absolutely right. I mean, it's bizarre. That, he was saying the line of the panel, the, John, the Whittingdale group, is, is demented, you know, it's like doesn't include, that was his point he was made, it doesn't include any creative people, it should be including Stephen Moffat, you know, for example. And um, that's, that's the point, it's not, they absolutely should be looking at the BBC, of course, the BBC has to be accountable to us, the public, and they, and they are the conduit for that. But once they start only talking to the bigwigs and other executives and the people, you know, who it, it, that class, if you like, um, working in the industry, they're only getting one side of it. And I think the frustration that, that people have is that when you put together a panel like that, you can almost figure out what the answer is before yeah, they course. even start speaking. And, and that's, that's where people get frustrated, is that if you're not going to invite creatives to it, you're not going to have a discussion I met about... One, I met, funny, on the way from the McTaggart lecture to the dinner, right, last night, I met one who shall be nameless executive who was offended, right, to be classed in this group of, like, TV bigwigs who aren't creative. You don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Right, yeah. So he was mildly, not a lot, but and I said, well, look, you know, what he's saying is, and I think this is so true, there, obviously there are people who are creative that go on to become bigwigs, of course. You know, they're not all people who have just been, you know, like, commissioning their whole lives. There are, um, believe it or not, there are some who have actually made TV shows. Well, including Yannichi right. himself, who had a role in commissioning, right. didn't he, at the BBC but my for point, But this is the point, and I think this is the underlying issue, is once, weirdly, once you become an executive, it almost like you start speaking in a different way and thinking and excommunicating. The difference between sessions of this thing with people who are actually writing and making and directing and starring in TV shows and the ones who are in charge of them is so weird. They all start talking in this kind of like 
rather tedious political way about stuff. But the creatives don't, you know. They're just very honest about stuff, and that's the difference. Someone else who was in the audience, and uh, it emerged this morning at the post-McTaggart kind of deconstruction chat that Armando Iannucci himself didn't even realise he was in the audience, uh, was the Culture Secretary, John Whittingdale. In fact, he was sitting next to me. Ah. Um, <laughs> we were monitoring his reactions yeah. uh, throughout the event. There was an absolutely priceless moment right at the end when Armando Iannucci got a standing ovation albeit these things slightly have a Mexican wave formation it took maybe five seconds for the audience to get to their feet yeah. it took John Whittingdale about 15 seconds <laughs> during which time he looked either side to his aides to decide whether this was a good idea oh, or not that's classic yeah. and, and in fairness he was essentially standing up to applaud the fact that he was an idiot or sitting down to look ah. like he couldn't take a joke so either way it wasn't going to work that's for him that's brilliant so I did feel a little bit sorry for him yeah. uh, but John don't Whitting- feel sorry for him uh, no okay fine I don't really and no. I'm playing a devil's advocate with the other stuff as well I love Amanda Inucci <laughs> he's brilliant <laughs> John Whittingdale did do his own session here yeah. earlier in the day, didn't he? Alistair yeah. Stewart uh, was asking him about the BBC cuts, uh, and he said uh, the BBC should try to make the same efficiency savings as we're asking every public body to do. And he also talked about Channel 4. He said the ownership of Channel 4 is not currently under debate, which of course isn't the same thing as saying it's safe. You think he did enough to allay all the fears about that, or did he make things even more complicated? I think with the Channel 4 story, there's that that should always be, there's always going to be an underlying tone about that. Should do we need to have another public service broadcaster that's that's owned by the state? And and I think that's going to be an ongoing argument for as long as Channel 4 is owned by the state. And I think that again, it's a good thing that we continue to debate that. But there's never going to be a right or wrong answer to that because then they're not going and they're never going to kind of state their claim to that until we actually get an answer about what's going on. So I think that that's a I think that story is exactly what you expect a politician to say and that, that didn't surprise me in any way. Uh, I think that the the thing about Whittingdale and, and his chat around the BBC is is I, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a fan of what the Tories are doing right now when it comes to media. In fact, I'm, I'm not a fan at all in any way, shape or form. But I, I think that what's interesting about what John Whittingdale is doing is that he is very much advocating a debate. And I think that we, we need to engage with that and we need to make sure, which is actually the, the really good work that broadcasts have been doing, is that they've very strongly been trying to to make sure that, that that debate actually happens and people actually are talking about it and defending it and, and riling a bit more passion around what I think is our greatest public service. Yeah, I mean, one final conspiracy theory on this for me. Mm. Uh, is it possible that this whole debate around Channel 4 and the BBC, it, it's not a coincidence that it came about after the decision made behind closed doors again yeah. about oh, the BBC's funding. The whole thing. But actually, the whole thing's designed so that people get upset about that bit, the new yep. bit, and yep. then don't talk about the deal that was done behind closed doors again and get upset about that, which we would be if yep. this other discussion wasn't yep. happening. Partly, the whole thing, um, for me, the whole thing is a load of old absolute bullshit because what it is, is John Whittingdale and Ed Vasey have to appeal to the probably half, maybe, of the Tories, of his MPs, I mean, who think, hate the BBC viscerally and philosophically because they think they're a bunch of lefty liberal twats, even though they're not, and, um, and that they think you should shut it down, pretty much. I'm serious, you know, he has to appeal. This is politics. It's, po- it's the most mindless, obvious, basic politics. The Tory culture minister has to appease the idiots in his party who hate the BBC and the Mail and the Telegraph and the Times and all those vested interests that also philosophically... That's what it's about, nothing more. So I completely reject the notion. The BBC, let's face it, pretty much 90%, I would... Well, I mean, I've, that's completely plucked out of the air, of what they do in terms of content 
is is it's better research than that better statistic. than everyone you know is excellent <laughs> and is of appeal to a, a lot, vast number of people and it's of a quality that's as high as it's ever been higher than it's ever been right and you know bottom line is as Amanda Nucci basically was saying in the end after this whole process it'll end up being pretty much the same as it is now thank God. Right. This is the media podcast, not the politics podcast. But I should just mention that as we sit here now, discussing and debating, uh, another politician, a rather significant one around here, is in the building. The oh. Scottish First Minister, Nicola oh, yeah. Sturgeon, yeah. is currently delivering the alternative MacTaggart. But I can tell you what she's going to say. Oh, yeah, what's she saying? Because uh, I got em- the embargo text of that one emailed through as well. She's going to talk about the media industry being over-reliant on social media to get their source of easy stories she says that risks sacrificing some of the best traditions of news gathering and investigative journalism in scotland and the uk that's not the main thrust of her speech which as you might imagine goes on about bbc scotland and all kinds of stuff that might not be of interest to the the public at large but that jumped out at me for as do you think she's right to talk about lazy journalism and a reliance and over-reliance on social media well, I think that there's, there was a really good book, and um, you may remember it, called Flat Earth News, that spoke yeah. a lot about PR and how PR has changed the game when it comes to news gathering in this country. And I, th- I think that there is a legitimate argument to say that the speed in which we require breaking news, you know, coming to our phones and, you know, hitting our screens as quickly as possible has meant that, um, you know, mistakes have been made along the way and, and things have been overreported when actually they're not that much of a story. That's going to happen. I think what social media allows is, you know, what, what particularly Twitter and, and how that's kind of, you know, explained and Facebook now in, in the way that they've redesigned their newsfeed is that they've exploded this, this notion of how you can both control the messaging and how it gets out there and what you want to do but, but also it can get out of control as well and, and you, you, can't put a, you can't actually um, keep a hold of it and, and that's made things more exciting when it comes to news um, it, there is also unfortunately uh, a situation where the biggest celebrities are, are now kind of overtaking the news agenda because whenever they tweet something or say something that becomes headline news which I always find bizarre about why you need the news to, to to basically tell you what somebody is tweeted about which you could always get from your Twitter feed which always confuses me but the vast um, majority of real people aren't on Twitter that's the thing isn't it I mean if she's making that point I agree with that my mum's not on Twitter you know and I think the Twitter is a very unlike Facebook which is a vast huge you know billions of people are on Facebook right pretty much every my mum is on Facebook it's all about my mum but so she's my main news source but if you're yeah you're right but what I'm saying is, is that actually as far as Twitter's concerned, it's, I think it's kind of a media thing. People who tweet, people who look at it and really engage with it are kind of the media class, I think. Like, it's particularly big among them. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling thing. So, you know, celebrities argue with each other on Twitter. The, the Daily Mail reports on it, so does he. And, it, and then they respond to that. And it's kind of a thing. And I don't think there's wrong with it. it. That is cheap journalism. Whether it's well, lazy or not, whether it's what the public want to read or not, but it is cheap uh, to employ but if my mom, to If my mum isn't media. on Twitter and she's not seeing that, you know, yeah. thingy from One Direction is arguing with what's-his-name from whatever, about something she might want to know and reporting on it is fine if these are real people discussing something vaguely interesting or even trivial and and, and stupid not everyone's on Twitter so I think it's different I do think it's different I think it's valid if she's saying people are looking at Twitter and Facebook for real news stories and kind of basing what they do on that you know kind of actually kind of going and then use agenda going oh what are people talking about on Twitter and Facebook I'm not sure about that but I, I do think there's an over there's a kind of media obsession with Twitter that is I mean I love it but I'm saying in the real world it doesn't mean anything you know for example I get lists of the most trending programs on Twitter you know and they never correspond very rarely correspond to what actual people watch but there's a, there is a fascinating thing again I, I know like you said earlier we're not 
we're not on the Today programme and we are actually about the media podcast. But I, I do get fascinated about when a new story breaks and you kind of go to all the politicians and go, right, what are they saying? Well, I want to comment from them in 140 characters immediately. And I'm sure someone like Nicola Sturgeon has that, where something happens, not even in Scotland, but around the world. And it's like, is, is she going to make a statement? And obviously you jump to Twitter straight away and go, you know, what is it that she said? And you, you need that very... Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sync soundbite yeah. from that oh, yeah, politician to tell yeah. you what's going on. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of led to something really interesting where where journalists can almost kind of go down the list of important people to see what they've said about a particular subject in a way that you never would have been able to do five, ten years ago. And needless to say, the most important people to follow on Twitter at any time is at The Media Podcast. (laughs) And at Faraz Osman. And at Boyd Hilton, yeah. 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 Not at Ollie Mann, though. He's a waste of space. Or if if you are uh, Giles Brandreth, regularly to be confused with at Ollie Mers. Uh, but anyway, really? it's a quirk of Giles's. <laughs> That's bizarre. You forgive Giles Brandreth. Is that deliberate, do you think? I think it is, oh, yeah. Okay. He thinks it's funny. It's yeah. a bit funny, isn't it? So you're now hosting the X-Factor? It's a bit irritating. Okay. Uh, we'll have more after this. So there's not just the TV festival that's happening here in Edinburgh. You may have noticed there are a few other things as well, including the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. But guess what? That also attracts people from the telly industry. They're everywhere like locusts. Uh, Ed Sleeman is a commissioning editor for BBC Entertainment. And I've just joined him in the Pleasance Courtyard, which is why there's, I think, a buzzy, cool vibe around us, Ed. Yeah, I love the courtyard. It's like, this is where I just... It's the first place I come to when I get here. But... Here you are, masquerading as an ordinary punter. You've got your Mac on. You look normal. But actually, you're here representing a massive broadcaster. What are you looking for, Ed? What's the secret sauce? I'm genuinely not looking for anything specific. I always look for a mix of people who I've seen before and I'm looking out to see if uh, you know what they're now doing or if they've got any better or worse. Uh, and oh, I'm looking for people who I've just not seen before. I'll quite often, I'll pick five people who I've no idea of and I just pick them 
slightly at random. I might have heard one or two little things about them, and uh, so I, nothing specific. I just I just go to as many shows as I can. I think I'm doing about thirty this week. It seems to me sometimes those recommendations are from people who do spend 10 hours a day in a venue watching comedy. And so they go for something that's a bit unusual. Mm. And actually, I imagine the pressure on you to find an act that might be mainstream enough to go on the telly means you're not necessarily looking for those kinds of acts. I quite often will go to see shows with, with other producers. I was, you know, I'm a commissioner now, but I was a producer before. And... Um, I've always hated it when, when producers, after a show, you sat with them and you laughed all the way through and you come out and they go, really enjoyed it, but there's just, I just don't know what you do with them. And you go, and I always think, well, that's not the point. They didn't write this show so that we could come and decide what we could do with them on telly. They wrote, they wrote an hour show, uh, quite often sort of laying their heart on the line, you know, with all the, quite, some of the shows are incredibly honest. So to come out and then say, yeah, but what can we, what can we do with them? How can we rinse them on teller? You know, I was, I've never really liked. So I do genuinely just try to go to see the show as much as I possibly can, as if I'm a fan of, of the of the act or I've been recommended it. And I it sounds really disingenuous, but it's true. I try to be as sort of respectful as possible and and just watch the hour for what the hour is, rather than constantly whirling, going, well, what panel show can I get them on? Which I just don't think is a healthy way to watch comedy and yet you know if you're an aspiring comic and you do want to be on the telly because ultimately that's where the money is even if you're actually talking about live touring revenues as a result of being on a panel show it's understandable isn't it you're going to try and tailor your show to impress people like you is that a mistake because you end up doing stuff that feels tried and tested or or can you think of comics you don't have to name them if you don't want to who clearly have come to the festival with their hour so that they can get on Mock the Week and it's worked for them I don't know what a comedian would do to make me go, oh, they're panel show material, other than, I suppose, doing, you know, some relatively quick, you know, one-liners or something. But but having said that, you know, James Acaster has been one of my favourite, if not my favourite shows in the last three years. And his style is just brilliantly, goes on these flights of fancy. You know, last year was he was saying that he was an undercover detective called Pat Springleaf and the whole comedy thing was just a, a ruse for him to try and solve some cases. I mean, it was ridiculous, flights of fancy. There's no way you would you would go. Oh yeah, well, that's what I want on my panel show. Because what you want on a panel show is someone who you can edit snippets down. However, James is an incredible comedian, and you know I always think we're really lucky to have him on any shows we have him on. So I, I suppose it, if anyone came in with that direct purpose of I'm going to get on a panel show, um, I don't know quite how they'd attack that. And a criticism of the Edinburgh Fringe over the past ten years or so. Uh, and this is kind of how we ended up with the free fringe as a part of the festival, which is where people can go and pay what they want, uh, is that the big venues, the Pleasants, the Underbelly, the Gilded Balloon, the Assembly Rooms, were dominating proceedings, and to get into there, you needed to spend 10 grand or whatever it is on your publicity, which means you kind of need to have a production company or an agent behind you. What role do those kind of industry contacts have in ultimately deciding whether or not a commissioning editor or a comedy producer might go and check an act out? Are you willing to go with word of mouth and check someone out on the free fringe? Or is it often the case that you're told to go and see stuff because money's been spent on this guy, this guy's the next big thing? I'd be really lying if I didn't say it wasn't a combination of the two. I mean, I get, I will get from, I suppose, June onwards, I start, the emails start coming in with, with the acts who are going to be up there and then throughout you know coming on the, the run-up to August and throughout August I would say this year I've had you know five ten emails a day from big agencies and and smaller agents you know who, who send their acts but 
it's completely understandable. It's their job to, to get people to the shows and, you know, and some telly people, as you say, you know, if, if that's ultimately their aim is they want to do more telly, which I don't think should be the be-all and end-all, but if, if that is the aim, then they've got to do that. But having said that, I mean, the last... So I've just come from a show in the Free Fringe... That was one of the ones I said where I just I literally picked his name on the book. I liked the I liked the sound of the show, and I just thought it's on at it's on at twelve. I don't have a show that day. I'll I'll go and check it out. And can you give us a trade secret exclusive about someone you've seen this year who you actually rate? I don't think it's any secret that Joe Lysett is having a brilliant festival. I mean, I I I think he was three years ago, and I was saw him one of the porter cabins, and there was about twelve of us in there, and it was a brilliant, brilliant show. It was one of my favourite shows that year. Saw him the other night, first night I was here, and he'd sold out the Grand, and you know, hundreds of people there, and it was a really great show. And he was just sort of effortless and confident, and it, I really, you know, in terms of whatever ready is, as I say, Joe, you know, Joe, I think he's ready. I don't think that's a secret. I think I would say I'm, I'd be surprised if lots of channels aren't trying to do more things with him now. Well, we're still at the TV Festival with Boyd Hilton and Faraz Osman. Uh, and of course, it is, in fact, the international TV festival. There is certainly a lot of Americans here. Uh, quite an impressive lineup, actually, including John Langraff from FX, uh, Rich Ross from Discovery, and Michael Ellenberg from HBO. Uh, but I wonder if they're as open as their UK counterparts. What do you think about this, Boyd? And you've been to a lot of TV festivals, as you were saying. I, I yeah. went to see David Nevins who's the president of Showtime. Yes. And it was very exciting because he showed us a trailer for season five of Homeland, and that Brilliant. was quite glitzy. Yeah. A uh, little bit too much Saul and F. Murray Abram for my liking, not enough Carrie, but you know. That's, oh, I love Saul. Yeah, well, we all love Saul, okay. but we, we wouldn't want an overemphasis on Saul. All He's right. a supporting role. All right. But, you know, <laughs> in terms of what he actually said about how he commissions shows, yeah. in terms of how he answered the questions that were put to him, yeah. it seemed to me the Americans are less used to being frank and honest and open in these kind of sessions than their British counterparts. Is that fair? Yeah, I think the problem is the Americans are so slick. Uh, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's true. You know, American executives of any industry, probably, let alone TV, are so well-trained and so... I mean, they can't get to where they are, can they? Without being just completely political animals who know what to say and how to say it. And, you know, you compare... I mean, I, I agree with you. You compare those guys, and they're all they're all brilliant I mean they're quite creative as well I think in some ways you know I do think if you're the head of FX or Showtime it's easier to be risky than if you're head of ITV or even Sky but you compare them to say Stuart Murphy who's this you know maverick say whatever comes into his head pretty much within reason on, in his panels and you think I don't, you almost wouldn't get that I don't think from an American an American top level TV bigwig and of course the other uh, sort of faction that's here in addition to the British TV executives I guess is kind of YouTubers and people like that uh, for as do they deserve their place at this table? You know, there's still a feeling, I think, that they're slightly second-class citizens. You know, it's worthy of a discussion, or can you make money out of building an app? But it's not quite the same as what the people at, you know, BBC Two and ITV are doing. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what I was mentioning at the, at, yeah, at the top of this chat. I, I kind of, anyway, I wasn't being flippant about it. Like, genuinely, we're doing some stuff with lots of online partners. What's going on with BBC Three at the moment and what's going on with All Four at the moment suggests that broadcasters want to get into this space and figure out what it looks like and, and how it works and, and actually you've got a lot of these guys that are 
are doing this in, in a YouTube space and they've, they've, some of them have got much bigger audiences even on television than, than some of the broadcasters have got and it, it's only fair that they actually come here and discuss what they're doing and what their experiences are along the way but will it, we be seeing a keynote from Zoella in 10 years time <laughs> or are they always no, going to be separated no you won't <laughs> Well, you say that, but I think that we, I think it's, it's it's a genuine possibility that next year we will see the alternative McTaggart come from Zoella, and I think that that would probably be quite an intelligent booking to figure out what that looks like. Um, I, I mean, I think that there's a there there is that feeling as to you know is is this sustainable? Is it a bubble? Is it going to burst? What is it going to look like? You know, once the TV guys come into this space, they'll they'll take it over and they'll find formats that people will actually want to watch. And actually, it's just because there's not content that's that's there that's that's of high quality, but people just want to keep binging on this sort of stuff. I I think that we've yet to see we've been talking about it for a long time we have yet to see a broadcaster I think although Boyd might might be aware of one I, I can't think of one on the top of my head of a broadcaster putting something online and it being a massive hit in the same way that their TV brands are yet Zoella is a name that you know and I know and all a lot of the people around here know and they, she is a brand um, that's, that's been successful Okay, you can hear the uh, braying crowd of TV executives advancing around us at the moment. I think Nicola Sturgeon has chucked out. Uh, yeah. But um, getting ready for the awards. The next, yeah, indeed. Aren't everyone's getting ready for the awards. Which I was is chair later. of the awards panel, let me just say. Oh. So the awards, if people don't know, are kind of half voted for by, I think, um, anyone involved in the general organisation of this festival and half by a specially convened panel of experts chaired by me. And it was a fascinating process, yeah. And I think, I think it, was, it, was an int- it was a tough year. BBC One won Channel of the Year. Okay. Um, Why? Well, I think it was kind of between BBC One and Channel Four. I'm not even enough to say that. Uh, you know, I think Channel Four won last year. Not that that doesn't mean it couldn't win this year. I just think you know, it had, BBC One has massive, big Bake Off, World Cup coverage was astonishing. Um, it had the Missing, which was brilliant. Um, it just had a lot of really good. It just you know. It is still producing the best content around, basically. And ITV was dipping, you know, not so good in terms of its drama and its and its um, scripted stuff. Nothing massively decent factually either. Channel Four was the main rival. Of course, the, the politically interesting thing would have been to give it to BBC Three. Yeah, that, that would know, be your Daily Mail headline right there. It would have been, but. Yeah. But you resisted that, which is good. It was we quite did. Close though, wasn't it? I, you know, I, I remember. Yeah. We, you know, we we there, there was a lot of debate about. I think there was only like one or two votes in it. Were you one of the judges as well? I, I, I was. Bloody yeah, hell, we, we get a good guest, later, don't we? Oh. My God, <laughs> we get everyone. Um, all these people around us work for the TV channels. They well, don't know I, who's won, so, and I'm talking to people who know. So I'm, Are you listening, I, Steve Hewlett? Yeah. So I, unfortunately, I couldn't actually make the panel itself, but but I got sent. Um, uh, the tapes of, of what was on the short shortlist, and, and it seemed quite obvious that it was very a very tight race between BBC One and Channel Four and, and BBC Three as well. And I, I think that you, you look at the shows that are on there, and, and actually it was very difficult not to give it to BBC One, particularly when you actually look at the stats of how well that channel's done and and, uh, and yeah. how it's actually uh, share managed, is up. the yeah. share is up. And that's, yeah. that's a difficult thing to do. And I think that the, the problem with with judging award ceremonies um, and and doing this sort of thing is is that. Uh, Sometimes it becomes a, uh, a competition of who does the best sizzle reel and who's got the best editing team yeah, in house. And and I think that there was a there was a real sense that when you watch the tapes, it was a bit like, oh, this this is obvious, like who's going to win. And then when you read the actual literature that that complements it, and you see the actual stats of how well things have been things have been doing, you, you kind of say to yourself, well, actually, there's a TV channel that's that's doing very very well at the moment, and there are others that aren't quite keeping up to pace. Well, two big shows, whether they win awards or not. Uh, are obviously Strictly Come Dancing and The X Factor, both shortly to return to our screens. Uh, Now, something that intrigued me was the slightly awkward and bizarre session where Kay Burley was interrogating the leaders of all of the channels. Uh, Did throw up this nugget that Peter Fincham, director of ITV, 
said on stage, sort of put the gauntlet down to Danny Cohen, the BBC director of, of yeah. TV programmes, that ITV are going to publish the times that the X Factor will be on every Saturday, yeah. and then it's in the BBC's court not to schedule strictly up yeah. against it. It was brilliant. Oh, it was, the, what it did was you make by of it? far the most. I'm, I'm, for the first half of that session was um, unbelievable unbelievably disappointing because nothing interesting came up and then suddenly it came alive you know you had the five most powerful people in British broadcasting kind of and then it was all boring and then suddenly this Strictly versus X Factor thing happened I thought it was a great coup by Fincham to do that and I did think it placed Danny I have to say my one I'm, you know clearly I'm a massively pro BBC I do find their deliberate competitiveness over things like this irritating because they don't need to do it that's the bottom line and I do think it's slightly weird how competitive the schedulers and Danny himself is I mean you know I'm sure he'd admit it and all BBC controllers are they want to beat ITV they want to they want to hit X Factor's ratings which really and it's kind of that's not really is it really their job I don't know I, I, no, I, don't I think know. people Fincham's point was they, their research is and our, mine is too as a, as a Heat TV editor our readers want to watch both and they want to watch them both live and they want to watch one after the other and don't and, and if you if you don't do that, you will get a backlash. And that and Fincham's political way of dealing with it was clever, I thought. But isn't it part of the fun? Isn't it like to, to know who's beating what? And like, you know, no, you know those headlines are strictly beating X Factor and X yeah, Factor's beating strictly. That's, you're that's right. all part of the fun. Is, it's part of the fun, particularly for the media and for papers and, you know, to run headlines. But in, in the end, it doesn't matter because even if they're one after the other, you can still see who who's gets bigger ratings. You, that story still runs. So you, it's not, they don't have to clash for that to be a story because people are still obsessed with which, which show is more popular than the other, no matter when they're on. So that's it's still a story. It's like, the thing is, they, they love actually being able to claw at the X because they know if they put Strictly on right up against it while it's on they will dent their ratings and that is annoying but but if they were a commercial organisation so there wasn't the issue about they shouldn't be taking revenue away from a commercial organisation yeah but they're not if, but they're not <laughs> but if they were a commercial organisation it wouldn't just be about stealing the audience away from X Factor. It would be about giving a lead-in to whatever the show is that's on after Strictly. Yeah, so the, the, thing's got, the thing of Strictly service, is the national is lottery. I mean, who gives a shit? <laughs> it, needs, it needs all the help it can get. <laughs> yeah, right. It's never been better than when Noel presented it's the not first bad, episode, honestly. in my and, view. And the other thing is, I thought they were a bit disingenuous. He was kind of talked about, you know, oh, with the sporting events on. He, he likes denting X Factor ratings. That's the bottom line. And he doesn't need to do it. Okay, so win to Fincham on that one, in your view. I think so. Okay. Uh, one other session that I went to anyway was called The Future of News. Uh, the BBC's head of news, James Harding, appearing at that event, uh, talking about the speculation around BBC News Channel and whether that might go online, like BBC Three. Uh, he said the service was durable. You can't <laughs> help but quote these people like they're politicians, can you, when they use words like that? Uh, he said its future would depend upon their mobile strategy. He said, over the last few months, we've been looking at how we can make sure that we have the skills to stream. And in that, you have to think, where would the world of news channels fit in? Do you think we still need a 24-hour BBC news channel Oh, my God, there's a lot of hyperbole in that, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> so my, my phone will stream my news in the future. It's like, uh, Okay, cool. I, I mean, the reality is, is that people get their news from lots of different sources. Um, and actually having a, having a news channel is, well, some people wake up in the morning, they turn that on. Some people are in offices and they have it on in the background. It's useful to have a news channel as a TV, that's a TV channel. And uh, I, I can't see that going away anytime soon. So something John Riley from Sky News said at the same event yeah. is, we are entering the world of the big correspondent. And what he meant by that, which oh. is quite interesting, yeah. was he sees a world where even his big names on Sky News, Ed Conway, for example, with an expertise in a particular area, mm. might feel entitled to have a contract whereby, because they're so in demand, 
they could appear on the Today programme in the morning for the BBC, oh. do a briefing on the ITV lunchtime news, and then a programme on Sky in the evening, yeah. because their online following are interested yeah. in them, oh, that's interesting. or Robert Peston, yeah. or whomever it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Can you see that happening? Well, I mean, I think actually, this is one of the things, bizarrely, that came out of the leaders' debate, was, was Kay Burley and her... her ridiculous way of interviewing people where she tries to pretend people have said things or done things that they just clearly haven't and it's actually quite irritating but, <laughs> but Kay is, is clearly being employed because she's a personality whether she rubs people up the wrong way yeah. or not and that's part of Sky News' strategy that they employ personalities and that's the reason you come to their news channel over the BBC or, or ITV News rest in peace it's like there, there's a, there's, there is a sense already that having kind of big news anchors across the day is one of the reasons why you stay with those channels and that is Sky's strategy and I can see that continuing to elevate what worries me particularly when it's somebody like Kay Burley is when those news anchors become bigger than the news stories themselves and it felt to me particularly during that leaders debate that Kay was trying to be a bigger story than actually what any of these guys were saying and people turned up for, for those leaders and not for her yeah I mean final point on that just in terms of sessions at the Edinburgh TV festival and boy do you say you've been to a lot yeah I mean I was thinking about this as a presenter watching it yeah this isn't a point about Kay Burley necessarily it's about <laughs> okay. a lot of presenters who choose to be kind of antagonistic and confrontational yeah. to get a response uh, inevitably I I can't help the fact uh, that I'm watching that thinking, well, how would I present this session? What would I do? And yeah, I, I'm not sure that being confrontational is always the best approach when you're trying to get a response out of people in the industry to people in the industry. It seems oh, to yeah, me like very often the presenters are trying to just show, yeah. look, I'm prepared to yeah. bite the hands that feed. Yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm not very confrontational, as I'm sure people would know when they see me, anyone who see me do a session. I think you can still ask tough questions and the questions that have to be asked but in, in, a, in a normal way. I, for me, like, I watched Kate Burley, I mean, isn't it, she is a good example. I watched Kate Burley in that session and I thought, you're a bit weird. It's all a bit, you're just socially a bit, just a bit, all a bit odd, the way you're communicating. I mean, there was a technical hitch with the sound, which didn't help, they couldn't hear each other. But just the way she deals with people is just odd. The things she says to people, it's, it's all very, it's rather contrived. And I don't know, I just find it odd. So whereas for me, it's all about having a, a natural conversation. I try. I'm trying to have a natural conversation if I'm hosting a thing here with whoever I'm interviewing, whilst at the same time making sure I ask them what the audience want to know about. Uh, that's that's the key. It's not they're not if they're politicians. I want Jeremy Paxman to be horrible to them because that's brilliant. But we're not. It's, they're not politicians. They're doing a job and they're making TV programs. But on the reverse of that, I, I think what Alistair Stewart did with John Whittingdale, I think he did an I mean, excellent he is a politician. job. He needs to be. Yeah. He needs to be um, very harshly. Uh, uh, and I think that he he did an excellent job, and I think that that, that made that a much more interesting experience. And and I think that oh, if yeah. you're going to you know if you're going to be confrontational, you, you have to have the I think the the, the stats and the yes. and the knowledge to back it up, and and that's kind of key to all of this and, and you could tell when you're in when you're in that session that there is a person on stage that knows more about this than you do they're educating you they're getting the answers that, that are going to matter and that's what good interviewing should be about it can't just be about shouting at people and pointing your finger in the hope that it'll provoke a response that will be a fluff and a uh, you know and you'll get a, a soundbite out of it that will you know be a faux pas and, and that will become the headline that's not good journalism to me okay i want to sort of wrap up because there's a bloody mary downstairs at the awards with my name on it yeah got uh, there's the a awards, virgin mojito yeah. for you for us i'm sure you can <laughs> tell us what everyone gets up to when they've had too many to be clear yes yes yeah. Yeah. but despite the fact that alcohol is waiting for me around the corner there is still time to squeeze in the media quiz of course uh, it is the highlight of the show this week it is entitled outside the bubble there is an industry outside these four walls but do our delegates know what else has happened in the media news this week best of three buzz in with your name 
The winner gets an invite to every corporate party at next year's TV festival. The loser has to go to every <laughs> corporate party at next year's TV festival. Here's story number one. The Sun today published its first website traffic figures for two years. But how many did they get? Buzzing with your name. Boyd. Boyd. 72 people. <laughs> for us, higher or lower? <laughs> well, it's obviously higher. I'm, I'm going to go website traffic over what period? Yeah, I think it's uniques over a month. Uniques over a month. Uh, for the Sun, I'm going to say 1.2 million. 800,000 just Oh, it's pretty poor, isn't it? Uh, making it the least <laughs> visited UK national newspaper wow, website. That's amazing. It's astonishing it, for the most popular paper. That's a disaster. It, it, Their whole paywall um, thing was a complete disaster. I mean, it, what were they thinking? When it launched, am I making this up? When it launched, didn't they actually launch it as the current bun? Wasn't it the current bun? Oh, probably, yeah. I think. Yeah, I remember that and kind of getting that, very that was confused. like when GMTV had GM.TV, wasn't yeah, it? It was an age. Bottom line, they've had to rethink that strategy. They have. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, in fairness, since it's only been a month of them kind of putting their biggest stories, Lord yeah. Sewell and the, yeah. and the cocaine yeah. hookers and all that, yeah. up online, alleged, yeah. up online, yeah. uh, beyond the paywall. Actually, I mean, I'd be thrilled with 800,000 figures for a month, but uh, I'm not Rupert Murdoch, as you say. I think no. there's going to be that's, that's, yeah, that, that's, some discussions at high levels about that. Daily Mail gets 14.3 million unique Bloody browsers no. per wow. day, by the way, in case you uh, were wondering for a comparison. Right, story number two, control. That in a word, is what politicians have so often craved to have when it comes to the BBC. But who wrote that this week? Buzz in with your name if you know the answer. God, what was the publication that they wrote it in? Uh, it was in The Guardian, the uh, titular sponsors of today's yes. event. You're both, um, both showing that you don't read The Guardian. <laughs> Buzz in with your time, of course I do. And it's free here as well, they're yeah. adding it out around here. Um, um, as free as The Sun's biggest stories, but you don't know. Think? I'm going to have to put you out your misery if there's no answer. The answer was Nick Robinson. BBC correspondent Nick Robinson. From his riposte in The Guardian to Alex Salmon's accusations of bias at the corporation. Uh, Well worth a read when you get home. Uh, And also, of course, Nicola Sturgeon at her alternative McTaggart uh, talking about some of that stuff as well. Uh, Right, this is what we traditionally call the tiebreaker, although (laughs) Boyd is probably going to run away with this, Uh, (laughs) despite not knowing the answer. Which organisation was dumped... Cruelly dumped by the BBC this week after a 90 plus Oh, year I know, Boyd. Boyd, yes. Oh, the uh, weather people. <laughs> the <laughs> <laughs> the, the <laughs> meteorological. No, 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 no too late. For us, yes. The Met Office. The oh, Met Office. Weather Damn people. you. Have some oh. respect. Oh, come yeah, on. Going for a hard you know what I right meant. Now. You have snatched victory from the jaws right. of defeat. Oh, I feel it's a moral victory for me. No, it's being put out to tender. Scandinavian companies are bidding. I want to say, I think it'd be really interesting if there's lots of app developers to get into this space. So things that, because weather apps have had a massive explosion recently and things like Dark Sky is a huge and it'll be interesting to see if there's a relationship between a weather app and the BBC and the BBC weather I think what will be interesting to see is how many of the Met Office presenters go off to present for whoever gets the contract now yeah yeah definitely I mean because yeah. they're the faces aren't yeah, they totally yeah. not taking Schaffernacker away Schaffernacker's good he'll be back he'll Just, be somewhere <laughs> yeah well on, on that reassuring thought uh, Boyd Hilton thank you for thank joining you. us uh, Faraz Osman, congratulations on winning the quiz. Thank well you very done. much. Can I say, yeah. my favourite thing by far <laughs> that I've seen at the festival is Boyd's trainers. Have you seen these? Yeah. They are, I'm so jealous of these. They are actually amazing. And um, anybody that's here yeah. at the festival... Yeah, they look like a pair them. of normal night trainers. They, they you not, have to catch no, the light. They're iridescent in the they're light. Like, they're I think like chameleons. Still they're yeah. incredible. Yeah, Producer they, Matt um, has taken a picture. Yeah. For those of you that have yeah. clung on to these final <laughs> moments of the podcast, you can <laughs> Thanks, see that Thanks, at twitter.com slash mediapodcast. I'm going to cherish that. Today's show is dedicated to Colin Dowling, a long-suffering TC 
working for a Scandinavian broadcasting company that enjoys news and discussion from the wider media world. Uh, if you would like to support the show, like Colin and get your name read out in my sexy voice and get my internal gratitude as well, then please go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. Uh, I've been Ollie Mann. The producer is Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bye-bye. 